tell me, if you will, if the following paragraph makes sense. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. But birds seldom get too close. And if there, are any, if there aren't any snags, it can be peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you will not get another chance. All right, you know what I'm talking about, right? Any clue? You shouldn't. Because I have left out the one key to understanding this paragraph that I've read for you. The one contextual key to make heads and tails of what's going on here. It's just one word. Kite. Right? Now, now tell me if it makes sense. I want to read it again. All right? A seashore is a better place in the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times, or if you're like me and my children, several days, <laughs> several years. It takes skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there's no snacks, it's peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. It makes complete sense. Right? If you just add one simple word, kite, that's all you needed. Many of us, if not maybe most of us, when we open our Bibles, especially the Old Testament, and we start reading that first paragraph, wherever we open to, maybe it's through a reading plan, or maybe you've just played Bible roulette, and you're just kind of kind of searching what's going on here, and you look at that first paragraph and you read it. It reads like what I read to you first time around, right? It's hard to make heads or tails of what's going on, first of all, and then second of all, how it applies to your life. So, I want to try this, for example. Let's pick a random section of the Old Testament. I don't know. Let's just say Exodus 14 through 40. All right? And, and I want you to see if you notice the point of what's going on and how it applies to your life. All right? I'm going to summarize Exodus 40, sorry, 14 through 40. All right? Follow me here. God tells a man and his family tree they're going to spend 400 years in slavery. His family tree, 400 years in slavery. But God will finally do something. He will help them get out, which is literally how Exodus translates. The decisive act of which will be a God-created highway of dry land in the midst of a large body of water. And after they get out, God causes them to wander in the middle of nowhere for 40 years while he gives them a ration each day to live off of. They're given a law to guide them, you know, like a proper nation, which they pretty much ignore, violate, scoff, turn up their nose to. Meanwhile, they receive a bunch of specific instructions on how to build a tent. The tent gets finished. They can't enter the tent. The end. So ends the book of Exodus. If you just knew those facts, what would you think about this book? How would you make heads or tails of it? How would you apply it to your life? Now, I'm going to provide you the one key to understanding it all, the one contextual key, which will unlock its meaning and application with a little bit of work. That key is Jesus. Jesus. You know, after Jesus lived and finished his piece of work here on earth, he says to his disciples, this is from Luke Chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then Jesus opened their minds to the Scriptures. And he said to his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day he should rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is interesting. Jesus says everything that the law of Moses, which we're reading right now, the prophets, the Psalms, the whole Old Testament must be fulfilled. And then he says, thus it is written. And if I were there with Jesus, I would say, okay, Jesus, where's it written? Scripture reference, Jesus? Can you give me one? But you won't find it in Genesis 22, verse 34. You won't find it in Zechariah 1, 32. Right? You won't find it in Haggai, chapter 2, verse 1. There's no way where you see all the things Jesus described. Christ should suffer. The third day should rise. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed so that everybody can know God forever. There isn't a Scripture text. Why? Because when Jesus says, thus it is written, he's talking about the entire law of Moses, all of the prophets, the Psalms, the whole Old Testament. Thus it is written. It's all right here. Not only does it refer to Jesus, but to his work that makes salvation and eternal life possible for us, also known as the gospel. Another way to summarize the gospel is this. All right, we heard Jesus summarize it here in Luke 24. Here's another way to summarize it. God saves individuals through Jesus Christ to make them into a people who join with him in building an everlasting kingdom. All right, so those four pieces, God saves individuals from bondage through Jesus Christ to make them into a people who get to join with him in building this everlasting kingdom. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And this is Exodus 14 through 40, guys. Each of these four pieces we're going to see of the gospel in the Old Testament. That means from the Exodus, which occurs, by the way, 1,300 years prior to Jesus' birth, to the closing construction of God's tent called the tabernacle. All of it points to, foreshadows, anticipates, the gospel's fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Our salvation. Not every Bible passage, let me be clear, covers each aspect of the gospel message, like those four points I mentioned. But every character, every miracle, every deliverance you see in the Old Testament, every law, every archaic institution, every tearful plea, every answered prayer is flavored with some hint, some angle of the gospel message. And that reality alone has two immediate implications for us as we open our Bible and we look and we wonder, what's this all about? A, we can turn anywhere and find the life-transforming gospel there. We can turn anywhere and find the life-transforming gospel there. It takes some work, but all of it then is relevant to our lives. All of it is, is feeding us and building us and encouraging us and convicting us and leading us closer to Jesus making us more like Jesus. But B, it also means that with every verse we read, 
we further feel the weight of this eternal plan, this forever, from ages past, ancient of days as we sang, plan to rescue individuals from every race and century and make them into one people, an us, who will live with God forever and together. Today's aspect of the gospel message, the first of eight, is God only. First of eight messages, God only. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 14. Start there. Page 48, by the way, if you're going to use one of these Bibles we provide in the chair pockets, and those are yours to keep, by the way, if you don't have a Bible at home. Exodus 14, there are three types of saving God does through Jesus Christ. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And what this means is justification is when you trust your life to Jesus, he makes you right with God. He declares that you are justified before God. That has been done once you trust Jesus. Then there's sanctification. And that's God's ongoing work on us during our lives to make you more like Jesus. But it's also referred to as saving us. And finally, there's what we call glorification. And that is the day when Jesus comes to take us to be with him, either through coming in the clouds of the air or through death, our own death, physical death. And at that moment, sin is done away with and we're saved to the uttermost. All right? So also we see three parallel types of salvation in Exodus. And here's the big key. It's God alone who accomplishes each. God only who does this work in our lives. For us who believe. So God only for deliverance, God only for provision in this life, and God only for final victory for the life to come. That's what we'll see this morning. We're going to travel through these three different saving exodus events this morning. From kind of the 10,000 foot view, we can't get into too much depth. But I want us to see every time we open the Bible, every time we get there, you can see, one of the things you can see is God only working salvation for his people, and that culminates in Jesus Christ. So firstly, God only for deliverance. We're going to start reading in verse 10 of Exodus 14. Read with me if you would. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? You have taken us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. So we see three parts to an authentic deliverance from bondage in our lives. The first part is the worst part. It's the fact that we all start from the same position of of slavery. Not slavery to human beings, but slavery to sin. Slavery to rebellion. Slavery to doing the things in our lives that displease God. We all start there. And the weird thing is, We all have a preference for slavery. Even when offered the opportunity for deliverance, for freedom, as Joe mentioned a minute ago, we still want slavery. And why is that, by the way? Why do we want those things 
that we know the Bible says that God says will give us less pleasure, less enjoyment, less satisfaction, but we go back to them. Why is that? I don't really believe I can live without my sin. I don't really believe I can function without my sin, and so it masters us. Now think about this. If God were to really rescue you, and maybe he has through Jesus Christ, even here and now, you were to trust Jesus, the Bible says it's just like here with the Red Sea, that you actually cross from death to life. God parts the waters on the, from the cross, and you cross from death to life, from slavery to freedom. Imagine yourself, you're crossing from death to life. What would you turn around, reach back, and secretly sigh, no, I don't want to leave that. What would that be for you? That, that little escape patch you want to keep with you because you're not really sure that freedom will be better, that life with God through Christ will be better than what you had before, the little pleasures, the little indulgences. The Israelites had known the highs and lows of their masters, but when they faced freedom, they looked back at all slavery had to offer, and they said, I'd rather just keep what I know. And we see this, chapter 16, verse 3. They start to complain. They're wishing they could have brought with them into freedom the meat pots of the Egyptians, the bread to the full. For them, they got their bellies full all the time. They knew That pleasure, even though they were in slavery, at least they ate and got meat. And who doesn't love meat? They wanted that. But you can live without sin's mastery. Not because I said so, but because of the second part of deliverance. That is, that you can trust an active God. That God's going to do something to actually deliver you. It's not magic. It doesn't depend on just believing something to be true. And if you believe it long enough... You'll deceive yourself into living a life of freedom. It's not through getting yourself into a trance or a state of relaxation. It's because we have an active God who, first of all, works for you. Look at verse 13. The salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. He also fights for you. Verse 14. Yahweh will fight for you. For Israel, there was no sword or shield required, was there, in this battle against the Egyptians. You ever think about that? Every other war... Even in the Old Testament, David had a sling, right? Here, absolutely nothing. God does all the fighting for them. Look at verses 21 through 25. Read that with me. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the, dry, made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all the Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, which by the way is telling, isn't it? Did you notice that night today? A lot of these movies picture the Israelites running, like fleeing, like, that's going to crash any moment. This was an all-night venture, just walking. Again, even casually, they don't have to run, they don't have to exert themselves. God does all of it. He looked down on the Egyptian forces, and he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptian says, let us flee. It's clear God has given the Israelites the victory. Now, I love these last two verses, because people are sometimes prone to say, well, it's circumstances that drive people to religion. Right? So a broken down car, and someone sort of helped them along, shared Christ with them. Look, just... You happened upon someone who helped you. They knew Jesus. You went with them to church. 
or a broken down life. Look, your life went that direction. You were an addict. Things were really bad for you. Your life wasn't together, so you found Jesus or broken chariots. But here's the thing, friends. No circumstances are random, including broken down chariots. Notice it was God in heaven who looked down, caused their chariots, you know, spokes to fly, little bolts to find out, fall out. God is working everything for your deliverance through Christ. Nothing is then random. He is always fighting for you. For you who trust Christ, the way he fights for you is through the death and resurrection of Jesus, taking what evil considered victory and turning into a win for you and I. Satan thought he had won when Christ was crucified. But it was a victory for you and I. Fighting for us, God always. And he finally, he puts to death rival masters, right? Verses 27 through 28. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. The Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. And so God covers our sin, buries it, takes it away. He puts to death your rival masters. You may wish for them. You may reach back for them. You may someday want them, but they can never master you who trust Christ again. So, yes, there's a preference for slavery, but we have an act of God who frees us from that. What's interesting also in the final piece of deliverance is a watching people. I almost wanted to call this a passive people, but it's close. It's a watching people. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace just by trusting what we see, just by trusting what we behold, so that no man may boast. Every so-called action on the part of the Israelites is really just passive, isn't it? Look at that, verses 14 through 18. Stay silent. Stand. See. Stay silent. Is there anything less active? I guess you could say standing is active. Even now I'm standing when I'm leaning against this stage. It's very comfortable. (laughs) Not much. Think about that. Stay silent. God's way of delivering you is better than your way. Stay silent and watch what he does for you because it's better. Peter thought there was a better way. James and John thought there was a better way for them. Likewise, we do too. Ease and opulence, God. Just give me those things, and I'll really love you if you just make my life easier and blessed and everything go my way. But you know what God did? He didn't take them the straight route to the promised land. He took them around the way to the Red Sea. So also God takes us the long way that we might feel our desperation and reach out for a Savior, which is ultimately for our good. We think, man, if I could only contribute to this, God, if we could do this together as partners for our salvation... Yeah, that would be really great. I would feel more involved. And plus, there would be a limit of what you could ask of me because I had a part in it, so I have certain rights. By the way, is there anything more humbling than having to, someone ask you to stand in silence while you watch them do all the work? Stand in, I had this recently with a, um, uh, basically a friend of our family's, friend of a friend, uh, this shelving unit in, this, in the closet of a home we now own fell off, which is just, just crashed completely. Thankfully, no one was injured. But it just crashed down. I, I am just, I don't know really what to do with drills. You know, I, I own a drill. I know how to work it. Sometimes I just look at it. Very interesting. I don't know how to use it. So 
this guy comes in, he's very nice, friend of the family, going to do this for free, very kindly. And I'm sitting there, and I'm asking, okay, what can I do? He said, like, you can, you can buy this pack, and you can go ahead and sand it down. So I'm thinking, so you know what, better, better yet, just, just stand and watch. <laughs> and it's just so humbling. You're like, ah, I feel so helpless. That's what God is doing here. But he takes great pleasure in it. With him, it's all gift, but it's also all him. Stand firm. Why do we stand? We stand because we expect something. We expect something's going to come. We expect to move after standing. And so God is saying to his people, stand firm, be ready. God's about to do something for you. And finally, see. Guys, when you look to the cross, when you behold and fix your gaze there, just let faith rise up as Jesus meets your deepest needs. As you look to the cross, as you behold it clearly, and you see this is how much God loves you. And don't be surprised as faith rises up and you trust this God-man, Jesus Christ, to be your Savior. And so what is each aspect of God's deliverance? Why is it so important? It produces a life of radical confidence without arrogance. When I behold Jesus Christ crucified, it's not just my deserved judgment falling on him that I see. It's his whole life, as we know it from the Gospels, flashing before my eyes. Right? When you see Jesus there, you think, really, that man? That man that I read about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? That man who loves the unlovely, who risks infection not only from lepers, but from tax collectors, who patiently endures the slow ignorance and impetuous pride of such as the disciples? That Jesus? The one who most of all just loves to walk away, sneak away and steal time to be with his heavenly father and model for us what it is like to praise and love him. That Jesus, if this man lives such a life in order to die in my place, what do I have to show for myself before a holy God? What can I give to him that Jesus has not already done? Nothing. My best days, my pretty good obedience streaks, My my best moments culminated and weighed on the scale are nothing compared to what Jesus has done and how he has lived. Jesus only to stand right before my creator. Jesus only to deliver me from bondage to himself. But equally, friends, it is confidence infusing that he would choose to die for me. For me. I mean, out of a lineup, he would say, I want him. Really? Like, let me tell you why you shouldn't take me. I've got a lot of reasons. But he's already crossed me over. There's nothing I can do or fail to do for him to send me back across, for him to love me any less. So we see this infusion of confidence even take place in God's people here, as it should in the church today. Chapter 15 of Exodus. God's people, noticing their undeserved deliverance, no song sheets or rehearsals, But Moses leads 400,000 people in a spontaneous prophetic song. Imagine that. They just, Moses just leads and they start to, I mean, imagine that right now. If I just started singing, deliverance has come so we can cross over. Join with me. But you can. That's, That's the great thing. You can. You don't have to worry about being foolish or looking a certain way. God won't love you any more or any less. He has delivered you. And so we can sing. 
God only for deliverance. Secondly, we see here God only for provision. We see this in Exodus as well. So the Israelites are delivered. They wander in the wilderness, which is kind of symbolic, the wilderness is for this life. And God keeps saving them and similarly keeps saving us. So first of all, God only provides miraculously. Now turn with me over a few pages to Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 25. Exodus 15, 22 through 25, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah, which means that. You may remember that from the book of Ruth. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. He threw that log into the water, and the water became sweet. Beautiful. There's no more basic necessity to life than water, right? Human beings can last three to four weeks, almost a month, without food, but about a week without water. It's the one thing we basically have to have physically to keep on going. So it's fitting that the deliverer shows his fatherly provision first through agua, right through the H2O, then bread, and then once again, meat. Don't you love this? I love how God throws in meat continually. This is great for a number of you South African men who love your brides, right? You're like, yes, I knew it. See that more in chapter 16, by the way. You can read that later. The people grumble to Moses who cannot produce water or even artificial sweetener. But Moses grumbles to God, who can produce both. Not only water, but water that actually tastes good, that's potable. So God doesn't just deliver us from bondage, then beam us up to heaven. Right? He could do that. Cross us over the Red Sea, cross us over to life, then we just beam up to heaven. He has a different plan. He wants to bring us into his family, become a father to us, transform us as we increasingly take on the family resemblance, become more like his son. He means to be a father to every son and every daughter. So he provides for us during our years of the wilderness in this life. Do you have a need? He accepts grumbles. Isn't that good news? He accepts grumbles. In fact, if you look at Exodus 16 later, you can do this later on your own, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 12, we're reminded again and again, God has heard your grumbling. Again, it's this pattern. He has heard your grumbling. He's going to do something about it. He's heard your grumbling. He's going to provide for that complaint. Man, that is good news. I keep a chart in our boys' bedroom, Katie and I do, of grumbling or griping. All right, so they can earn up to three stars a day. Each star is worth five minutes of Wii time or iPad time, all right, which they can use at the end of the week. <clears throat> if they grumble, they lose a star, up to three per day, okay? Oftentimes, for each grumble, their father takes away a star. Sometimes it feels arbitrary to them. Maybe it is. Like, Dad, I don't even remember saying that. You said it. Be quiet. <laughs> there goes the star. So imagine... Our Father, He actually wants our grumbles. He actually wants our grumbling, and He gives life. He doesn't take away stars. He doesn't sit there and say, okay, you've offered a really great prayer. You lived this great life. Man, it's been a great day for you. Right, Neil? You've, you've done it so well today, so now I'm going to accept your prayer. 
And it was such a beautiful prayer, by the way. I'll, I'll accept that. He takes like the, God, this really stinks. Well, I mean, what is the deal with this? You've you got to help me. And, and then this is what he does. He's this amazing way when we come to him with our grumbles of transforming them in his presence. Guys, that's the whole Psalms. Almost all of the Psalms takes grumbles, transforms them into praise. As they transform us, God transforms us in them. Now listen, you may know uh, Cassian Lawrence. She recently joined our community group. She also recently bought a townhome. She gave me permission to share this story. Uh, in that townhome, she didn't have any furniture. She wondered what she was going to sleep on. The cleaners and maintenance guys were working on the place one day, and they were the only persons who had a key. The next morning, she showed up to her new place, and there, leaning against the wall, was a mattress and box spring. Now, I don't know if she grumbled to God for that. I don't know if she complained to him, God, how am I going to sleep at night? I need a but God provided exactly what she needed. And nobody else had a key to the place. No mattress, no box spring. Mattress and box spring. Miracle. When she called up the cleaners, when she called, talked to the, the maintenance guys, they knew nothing about it. They're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Miracle. God only can do this. What I love about God is how he rolls the next time around. Look at verse 27 of chapter 15. Then they came, God's people do, to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. So God only provides miraculously, but God only also provides providentially. God orders the steps for the Israelites to happen upon 12 springs and these dozens and dozens of palm trees. This is code for an oasis in the desert. They just came upon one. It was always there. All right? It wasn't this miraculous thing. But God doesn't just provide water out of nothing. He also gives you bottled water. All right? The regular kind. So some of you may know myself and my family. And that we recently also bought a place. And we needed a twin mattress for this place for my oldest son, Mason, to sleep on. We couldn't find one anywhere on EK. Look for... Weeks and weeks and weeks, people were actually desperate on the UK to find a twin mattress. The first furniture place on my wife's route that day was Tomlinson. She goes in, they have one at a great price. Now, it's not miraculous, but it's no less a providential provision from our Father. It was his money and our bank account that allowed us to do this. It's, it's not because of me that we have income. It's because God's given me this calling, and he's given me a gift, and he's given me a brain, he's given me a heart, and like, he works through all these things, all his provision, so that there's something called money. It was, it, was, it was his route that day. Katie didn't go a normal way. It was his impulse he put in her to say, you know, let's just stop in this furniture store and look. And there, boom, God provides a mattress. So not only miraculously, but also providentially God provides. So when you're worried about what's around the corner, tomorrow's tasks or today's perils, or just your daily need, which, by the way, might be more than your daily bread. It might be just your thoughts. You can't slow down your mind. It might be a, a temptation that you need the strength to avoid, the strength to get past. It might be something just silly that seems just kind of stupid to complain about to God. But it's not. Go to him with your grumbles and then rest in his sovereign care. Rest in his providence. He will care for you. It's not the, the quality or length of your prayers. It might be a grumble 
Or it might be even just be an intention to pray, but you forget. Seek him. He will provide. He is trustworthy to do so. So we see God only for deliverance, God only for provision. And in Exodus, we also see God only for victory. Turn with me, if you would, to this last passage, Exodus chapter 33. Oh, I'm so excited to share this with you. Exodus 33, it's going to be a few more pages. I'm not going to tell you what page because I'm hoping you can count and can get to Exodus chapter 33. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 3. God only for victory. So, the Lord said to Moses, depart. Now it's time to leave another this wilderness, this life. Depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give this. I promise you this land. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consumed you on the way, because you're a stiff-necked people. In other words, you're a stubborn people who just won't obey me. Now, for us who trust Christ, the promised land is represented over and over in various images, such as Hebrews 4, as heaven, our final rest. For the Hebrews, the promised land was characterized by two things. It was characterized by distinction. So we see here, right, I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and all others, everyone who's not like you, who doesn't know me, who doesn't have a relationship with me, who's not made holy and pure and right because of me. They will have a rest then in their promised land from the constant temptations to indulge and conform to the patterns of the other nations. They'll have a rest from that. Finally, a rest. Also to be rid of the evils of a Oppression of the vulnerable, exploitation of every person using one another. Done. Finally, it's done. Another thing characterizes the promised land for the Hebrews. That is abundance, right? Verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and with honey. And I don't get, you might be lactose intolerant. All right, so milk is not your favorite thing. But for, for them, this was everything. Milk and honey, you think of, you think of that image. What do you think of? You think of all the good things of your life. In the same breath, God tests the inner motives of Moses and his people. So before they take this last step, the final victory, test their inner motives. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you. Notice that. Whoa, whoa. an angel? That's pretty good. Notice verse 3. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, because you're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. God is testing them. And if you think about it, What God offers here is what most people want, right? The blessings and benefits of God without having to deal with God himself, without having to deal in heaven with his highest holiness. We want to come to God, the God to prove everything we do in life, the life we're already living, the sin we're indulging in, the other gods we're worshiping in our life, whether it be our job, whether it be self-gratification, whether it be the right to act how we want to act towards our spouse, because that's my right. We want to keep those things, yet experience acceptance by God, experience the blessings he offers, experience the power to be kind and to love others. And that is essentially what God is kind of offering here, isn't it? 
I'm going to send an angel with you. I'm not going to go with you. But you're still going to get the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, honestly, how many of you guys would accept that deal? The blessings of God without God himself. Moses recognizes something profound, but that's because he's already experienced someone profound. Having experienced, he's experienced all the highest pleasures, the lofty opulence of being a prince of Egypt, the best the world can offer. But his distinction from evil and his abundance is God himself forever. Guys, the promised land ultimately is God forever. God forever. It's not sort of the, just the flowing river of life in heaven. It's not all the, the amethysts and the various kinds of stones we see that no one's ever heard of. It'll be so cool. It's, it's the God whom and I in heaven but you, the psalmist says. The promised land is God forever. Read with me in verses 12 through 16. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You also have found favor in my sight. So he's reminding God of his promises. He says, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. And God says to him, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I have found favor, found abundance in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? I have found favor, abundance in your sight, I and your people. Isn't that in your going with us? You are our favor. You are our abundance. We want you, God. Is it not in your going with us so we are distinct? I and your people from every other people? You make us distinct, God. Moses then presses in to experience the fullness of God and all his glory. Check out verses 17 and following. The Lord said uh, to Moses, This very thing I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. It's the biggest request. Charles Spurgeon once said, This is the biggest request a human being has ever asked of God. Show me your glory. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see my face and live. The other day, someone in our church shared with me the Bible passes they want read at their funeral. Because you know, all of us will have one, right? All of us will face death. So it's not if, but when you and I die. Number one, we are utterly in God's hands only. Number two, then we are totally dependent on his character. And both truths are here on display in Exodus 33, which are truths of the gospel. Number one, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. It's totally up to me. When you go into heaven, you can't do more good works. You can't prove to God how good you are. You can't show... God, look, I'll change. I'll I'll promise I'll be better. I promise now I'll trust you. You're totally dependent on the other side of death's door of God raising you from death. That's it. But at the same time, you can be utterly dependent and trust that he's totally reliable, his character. And he says in verse 19, I shall make all my goodness pass before you. 
And when he says his name to Moses in, in chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. This is who I am. I shall make all my goodness pass before you. How can you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is good, that he's already let his goodness pass before you? It is Jesus Christ crucified. That is God's way of saying, look, I didn't spare my only son, but gave him up because I so love the world. Here he is. I have let my goodness totally pass before you. I am reliable. And unlike the promise God gives to Moses, those who trust Christ will get to see him face to face. So each week I want to make sure that we land with a principle for connecting everything we read in the Bible to the gospel. So in the end of this series, we're going to have a collection of eight principles, one of which almost certainly apply to anywhere you turn here in this Bible. Anywhere you want to play roulette or you want to start in Leviticus, it will apply. So this week's, whenever I open my Bible, is this. Look for God only, his deliverance, his provision, his victory. Look for God only and connect it with Jesus only. Jesus only for deliverance, the New Testament says. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it's by grace you're saved through faith, not from yourself, nothing you can do. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. To consider your calling, not many of you were noble, were great, were awesome in and of yourself, but God saved you by grace, so no one of us can boast. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way than through Jesus to be delivered from your sin. Jesus only for provision, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his son, but delivered us for, for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? Jesus only for provision. 2 Peter 1, 2 through 3. Through Jesus Christ, God has granted to you all things pertaining to life and godliness. Those two things, right? The basics of life, godliness, becoming more like Jesus. He alone can give you those qualities to make you more like who you were created to be. And finally, Jesus only for final victory. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. God has given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whenever it's God only, whenever he works good despite your dropping the ball or fumbling your words, remember he's always working through you. He's always doing that. When you manage to string together an intelligible sentence or you do something kind for people, it's God only. He provides against all hope, or when there's just a storehouse of hope, hope left over, it's still God only. When he delivers you or a loved one from illness, it's him who does it, but he also sustains you in your health. Whenever God takes something or someone left for dead and raises it to new life, recognize he does this every day, whether it's the opening of a flower or renewing your inner man, your inner person. Whenever you're tempted to credit yourself or to receive credit without acknowledging God, remember it is God only. That inner desire to bless others, that perseverance in taking care of your family, that little risk you took to do the right thing. It's his impulse. It's by his gifting. It's through the presence of his spirit for you who believe. Let's pray. God, we see one message here in all of Scripture, evidenced here in the book of Exodus from the actual exodus all the way to the end, and that is your gospel. And today we see this this piece of the gospel, that it's God alone who acts, who, who can deliver us, who can provide for us, who can bring us finally to 
ultimate victory of knowing and being with you forever. God only. So we want to ask for the rest of this morning, the rest of this day, that you would receive the glory, the honor, and the praise. And for those of us here this morning who are scared to leave bondage, who are scared to leave the slavery and the familiarity of our sin, I pray that you would grant them freedom. You would grant them the truth that the life with God is true freedom, it's true life, true liberation. And that goodness has really passed before their eyes through Jesus Christ crucified. That's how you've shown such that you love them to the uttermost. Help us look to the cross and remember how you've ultimately delivered, provided, and given us victory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.